Welcome to 52 Weeks in the Word. I'm your host, Trillia Newbell, and today I have with me Dr. Esau McCauley. Esau is an associate professor of New Testament at Wheaton College and theologian in residence at Progressive Baptist Church. Let's step into your New Testament class. <laughs> We're going to be in your classroom for a minute. Um, and I want to learn about Ephesians. I love the book of Ephesians. If yeah, if I had a favorite book, which, you know, I do, um, Ephesians is one of that I, I just, there's something about it. There's a lot in there. <laughs> and so my question is, Ephesians seems to have a specific goal and structure in mind that feels unique compared to Paul's other letters. So am I right on that or wrong? And then would you walk us through the book of Ephesians? Oh, so I'm going. I'm going to try to avoid walking you through the Book of Ephesians in ten minutes because that would just that that would be I would I would get upset because I forget some things, but I but I can say a few things about what may feel unique, especially if one turns from say Galatians to Ephesians. In Galatians, you see Paul. He's kind of like uh, he's hot. He he's seen through responding to a direct issue that you can glean from the text of Galatians. You can kind of see the same thing in places like Philippians and these other places. In other words, you can see clearly that Paul is responding to a particular situation, and you can see Paul intervening uh, pastorally and theologically to settle some controversy in the church. As far as we can tell, Ephesians doesn't seem to have on its surface a pressing concern. And so it seems like if you read Ephesians, it's more theologically programmatic than it is pastorally um, a pastoral intervention. So a lot of people kind of see it in that sense. The other thing that, that makes Ephesians unique, but, but I, but I want to say this, though. I do think that Paul has a pastoral goal in mind, but it's not always the kind of pastoral goal that we might assume. So one of the things that I say to my students in class is that every tradition has their parts of the Bible that they love. And so on my Pentecostal brothers and sisters in my class, when, when Acts comes, they're like, this is our moment. They can kind of get super excited. Holy Spirit. And then when my Reformed brothers and sisters get there, they kind of go, Ephesians, this is it, God's sovereignty. And I would say, okay, okay, I know that you're excited about this, but let's actually try to read the text. And what I mean by that is not to deny that Ephesians has something to say about God's sovereignty, but how is God's sovereignty in something like Ephesians functioning pastorally for the people there. And so let me give you a hypothetical, a possibility of what's going on. Let's say, for example, the church at Ephesus, which we think it is, is largely Gentile. And the Gentiles who might be tempted to believe that they're kind of a plan B, that God had gone to the Jewish people, the Jewish people rejected them, and now they're kind of like the B team in, in God's kingdom. Like, you know, it's almost, I tell them a lot of the times, if you were getting ready to go to a prom, you will not want. You will not go up to the person and say, "Well, the person who I really wanted to ask said no, but since they said no, I'll take you." <laughs> like you know, you want to be cherished. You want to say, "No, you were my my beloved <laughs> from the moment that I saw you." And so, what I say then is that part of what's going on then, when God, when Paul is speaking about God's eternal election of people before time began, the way that it functions for Gentiles is to show that God had always planned to create a people through his son, Jesus. So that means that if you if you are a Gentile who's hearing this, you're not the plan B, you're not the B team. It was always God's dream, or not God's dream, God's vision, God's will to create one people. So I want to say one of the things that I want I would say to my students then, that if you use like election 
You should use it in the way that Paul uses it. He uses it to pastorally care for people who, who feel like maybe God could never love me. And so I would say to them, I say, so when you hear the gospel, when you hear the gospel, you're sitting in a congregation, and you think about what are all the circumstances in your life that led you to be sitting at that seat at that moment to hear that pastor or that youth group leader preach the gospel to you. In other words, that is God's sovereign hand moving through history. Um, there's this part in the children's book that that um, I, I talk about, the children's Bible that I'm that I'm writing, that I wrote, is that when the Great Commission was issued in, in Matthew, it was a ridiculous claim. Like, go and preach the gospel to the whole world. It's like 400 Christians at the time. But the gospel does. It makes its way and all the way from like Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the world, you know, across the Atlantic, you know, eventually here and somehow all the way down to Huntsville, Alabama. So it's someone who can preach the gospel to me. And if you put the links in the chain of all of the people who had to live and exist and do things, so the gospel comes to me, that's a sovereign act of God. And so what I want, I think that Paul is trying to do is he trying to theologically re-articulate human history so that people can see the, their role in God's trauma of redemption. That's the first thing that's going on. Well, the wait, second thing that I think is, yeah, car, sorry. I want to worship. <laughs> I was, I just was, as I was, you were talking, I was like, oh, what a good God. Let's worship, you know, that is that is so encouraging. Well, it's interesting that Paul concludes with doxology, right? So in, in other words, there's these, um, I don't have Ephesians in front of me right now, but I think there's something like Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2. There are these places where God, where, where Paul breaks out um, into, these dox, into these doxologies. We're going to, to the praise of his glorious grace. And so one of the things that I say a lot is, and I understand why, when we think about the exposition of scripture, we want to say, well, what's the practical application? What do I do now? And I get it. You need to know how to live as a Christian. But sometimes the practical application is you get on your face and you worship the living God. Like, that's the application. Worship. Um, and every now and then when I'm being kind of, uh, uh, kind of, I don't know what you call it, ornery as, as a communicator, I make it as my goal in the preaching. The response is doxology, not some particular behavior. Because doxology is itself morally transforming. So that's like what I, what I want to say is that if you then worship God for the glorious majesty of his eternal plan, climaxing in your redemption, then you're beginning to read Ephesians, at least chapter one, very well. So Paul, Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, he kind of goes, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You know, you, you walked according to the rulers of this world. You craved the desires of the flesh. And he says this as if it's something that we all agree upon. But this is the amazing thing. And this is what I talk about what it means to be a Christian that makes Ephesians two so amazing. When you're living apart from God, you're not saying, I'm following the prince of the spirits of the air, indulging in the, in the desires of the flesh. You're just kind of living your life. You're just kind of, for the most part, floating along. But then the gospel creates a crisis in your life that actually causes you to relitigate your past. In other words, things that you thought were actually good, in light of the gospel, they become foolish. And so what Paul is actually doing in Ephesians chapter 2, which is, I think, crucial for every Christian to do, is retelling the Ephesians their theological history. In other words, you're not going from, like, people say, like, I was free, and then I became a Christian, and now I'm kind of stuck in this kind of holy life. Paul is going, no, 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 you spent your time before you became a Christian enslaved to sin. 
And now in Christ, you've been liberated to follow God. And so this emotional work that we all have to do of relitigating our past so that we can understand the actions that we used to engage in as death dealing rather than life giving is a part of the theological work that we all have to do as believers. We have to begin to see our past before God and apart from God as in some ways fundamentally inadequate. Well, thank you. Gosh, thank you so much for this word. I I have been blessed and encouraged in my own faith. I just think, oh, what a good and loving God and gracious enough to show us ourselves so that we can understand fully understand the grace that we've received. And so with that, I'm just going to pray a part of Ephesians back to our own hearts. Um, this is Paul's writing, uh, starting Ephesians 1, 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably uh, great power for us who believe. Lord, thank you so much for who you are and we pray this in your name, amen. Thank you, Esau. 